The Interchange is brought to you by Jinko Solar, a leading solar panel manufacturer and energy storage integrator. Publicly listed on the New York Stock Exchange, Jinko Solar has deployed 100 gigawatts in 160 countries globally, including more than 15 gigawatts in the U.S. As a global leader with strong regional focus, Jinko Solar has a sales office located in San Francisco, California, and a manufacturing facility in Jacksonville, Florida, with over 300 employees available to provide customers with timely, local service. Jinko Solar now offers energy storage for a variety of residential, CNI, and utility projects. To learn more about Jinko's Eagle Storage Solutions, visit www.jinkosolar.us/interchange. At any time of the day, the energy we're using in our homes, offices, and your local coffee shop is provided by multiple sources ranging from fossil fuels, natural gas, and renewables. But how can we know when we're using a certain type of energy? Is there a way to pinpoint a time and place where the energy being provided is coming from renewables? When you think about it, electricity is one of the stranger products that a person could buy. It's one of the only products I've ever come across that if you have an ethical opinion about it, you can't really do anything about it. I mean, if you're a vegan and you want to buy vegan food, no one's going to stop you. But if you flip a light switch, you're actually making a purchase. And if you're an environmentalist and you don't want to be using fossil fuels, you don't have any say in that right now. That's Gavin McCormick, co-founder and executive director of Wattime. Wattime is a nonprofit which aims to make it easy for manufacturers and operators of smart devices to go green by using electricity when the grid is powered by renewables and not when it's powered by fossil fuels. Wattime says they have solutions to all these problems and more. How? The power of data. Let's see if they can make it work. Gavin, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm really happy to be here. You know, the electric grid is something that I think the average consumer uh, doesn't fully understand or appreciate. And they hear a lot about the increase in renewable energy that's available, uh, but I don't think that they fully understand how they can actually directly make an impact. And what it sounds like is Wattime actually arms them with the information that they need so that they can actually directly make an impact to the uh, emissions coming out of their energy use. So why don't you give us a little bit of an overview of Wattime and what you guys do? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I uh, didn't understand until I was a grad student at Berkeley how much consumers affect the power grid and its use of renewable every day. So when you flip a light switch or plug in an electric vehicle or anytime you're using electricity, I hadn't really focused on this fact that there is a single power plant, the marginal unit, that is going to react by producing more energy. Uh, and if that power plant is a renewable power plant that otherwise would have wasted energy, uh, curtailed solar or something like that, that's very, very different than if a fossil fuel power plant is going to produce more energy to power your use. And so I thought it was just crazy when I first discovered that every time you use electricity as an individual consumer, you're actually directly affecting whether we use more fossil fuels or more renewable energy. But nobody knows that fact. As you say, like this is very mysterious to the average person. And when I found this out in grad school, I was really surprised and thought, why isn't it the case that, for example, a light switch would have a little indicator light right next to it? You, uh, if you use energy, are going to use clean energy or dirty energy. A lot of people care about that fact. And so what, what time what we try to do is we try to make it uh, known to the average consumer when you use energy, uh, is it clean or dirty? And it turns out that the answer changes at different times. So you can actually control whether you use clean or dirty energy just by when you use electricity. And how do you go about collecting that, that data and information? So uh, power grids, in order to balance supply and demand, 
need to have pretty detailed electricity market information openly available to the public. So we're out there scanning every five minutes the power grid uh, information that is designed to balance supply and demand. So for example, the ISO markets, we're looking at the locational marginal price of energy. And we're getting a sense from that, what's going on in a power grid right now? What are the real-time current conditions? And we're matching that up to the historical record of emissions that the EPA monitors. They call it the Continuous Emissions Monitoring System. And we're able to say, in grid conditions like are going on right now in your area, in the past, what we saw is when a little bit of electricity increased, these are the power plants that change their behavior. And in certain grid conditions, we see those are the conditions where a peaker plant will change their behavior, produce a lot more pollution. In other conditions, we see those are the conditions where a cleaner power plant will produce more. Uh, and so using more electricity doesn't actually cause pollution. And so what do you provide to the average consumer that allows them to make these decisions? So, you know, we started out with a text messaging service that would text you information like, hey, right now in your area, energy is really clean. And that was okay, but it was a big pain to uh, every five minutes be looking at whether you should be using electricity right now. So we quickly moved to automation through IoT devices. So now we work with smart thermostat companies, electric vehicle companies, any kind of device that uses electricity and has a Wi-Fi connection. And so instead of informing people whether now is a clean time to use electricity, we let people choose, what are your preferences for electricity? Do you like wind power? Do you like low carbon power? Do you like other goals? And we have their devices automatically shift their timing for them. So it's kind of a set it and forget it form of environmentalism. And as you look at your forecasts, are you able to go back and check as to the accuracy that your forecasts have been able to, to meet? Yeah. And so every five minutes, what we are doing is both pulling in that forecast and looking at information about what did we learn. Uh, and so we're continuously improving our models based on the accuracy of the past to try to get closer. Now, it's a little bit harder in cases like this to be totally certain because uh, what you're comparing is what happened to what didn't happen. So if you're talking about how would emissions have been different if electricity abuse had been different, you can't get a perfectly quantitative answer to what happened, but you can get a really good sense of on average, how did we do? So that's what we're able to do. We're able to say things like this model is 95% accurate and get information like that. And how about the cost aspect? So, I mean, I think everybody's going to tell you, oh, I want to use more green energy when, when it's available and be more efficient with my use uh, and drive it towards the renewable sources. But then, okay, what's that going to cost me? Mm -hmm. So how does the average consumer that's utilizing this factor that incremental cost to what they're looking at? Yeah, you know, not the way we were expecting. So initially, when we started Watt Time, we, we didn't found an organization to try to change the world. We thought nobody was going to use it. We just wanted to use clean energy ourselves and it was sort of like a hobby project. But we started doing these studies of what would people do? Like, would people pay a penny extra for clean energy? Would they pay $10 extra? And almost everybody we interviewed gave us the same answer, which we didn't really see coming, but it makes sense in retrospect. Almost everybody we talked to says, I want to use as much clean energy as doesn't affect my bill at all. Not really willing to pay extra for it, but I want to go as green as I can with no change. And it turns out most of the time, there's no correlation at all between price and environment. So it's actually possible to have a huge effect without increasing your bill at all. Uh, and that's what we do. And, and what about the partnerships that you have? Uh, I know you're working with other companies and, and thermostat providers. And so tell me a little bit about who you're partnering and how you're doing it. Yeah. So our best known uh, partner right now is Google Nest. So uh, smart thermostats that through the Nest Renew program are able to look in real time at uh, how clean electricity is and shift the timing or heating and cooling load in your house to cleaner moments. We also work with companies like NLX that does electric vehicle charging stations. 
and increasingly energy storage. We also provide a version of our technology to um, anybody doing energy storage in the state of California through the CPUC's SGIP program. So that signal provides a real-time emission signal for energy storage operators in California to know uh, when's a good time to charge or discharge a battery if you want to lower emissions. And how do you see this evolving? I mean, where do you see watt time making an impact in the energy transition in 10 years down the road? Yeah, I like to think of this technology as similar to the Y2K fix. That's a really, really ubiquitous technology that isn't necessarily feeling like a big deal every day. So I don't see watt time as the kind of company that's going to be everywhere in the sense of consumer awareness. But I do think that this kind of reducing emissions at literally no increase in cost as a simple software solution, there's really no reason that can't be in every IoT device uh, in the world someday, whether by watt time or somebody who copies our technique. So we think this technique, we call it automated emissions reduction. In the long term, it will probably be in every smart thermostat, every electric vehicle, every battery. And the reason that's really interesting is that we are seeing more and more of the power grid being delivered by IoT devices. So in the long term, we think about 70% of electric load is ultimately compatible with IoT devices that can change their timing. And we think AR will eventually be reducing the emissions of about 70% of electric load, whether by watt time or some hypothetical future competitor. So this is really a way for your average consumer to be able to make an impact in reducing the overall incremental emissions based on their use of energy at the right time that they, you know, when there's things that aren't necessary and they can actually plan out a little bit more, they'll be able to make mm-hmm. a direct impact to the environment by timing it appropriately. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting, it's very different than other forms of environmentalism because it's kind of something for nothing. This is what I think technology can do. If you buy a solar panel, uh, it will gradually degrade over time. But if you just accept uh, an app like this, it will get smarter over time and it will every day show up to work doing something without you having to sort of pay anything or do anything. I think that's actually really different than a lot of people's experience with environmentalism. And today there's not that many IoT devices, but as we are headed towards a grid, particularly with electric vehicles, where this is becoming the majority of load, that's an amazingly simple, straightforward way to solve the fundamental problem that you don't know, uh, that it's hard to balance when the wind blows and the sun shines and when we use electricity. And what type of location-wise? So is it better with an ISO or a vertically integrated area? What, what's the best, or vertical monopoly, sorry, what's the best that you've seen this type of technology operate within? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Because we are fundamentally on the outside looking in at power grids, we are using statistics to look at what's going on. The more data we have, the better. So the ISOs that provide extremely detailed information are always going to be better than a vertically integrated balancing authority which in turn are going to be better than uh, power grids in some other countries than the United States, which basically don't want you to have any information. So we have sort of a, of a hierarchy of how much information is publicly available about these grids, and the quality is definitely higher in the markets that are extremely transparent, but you can do something anywhere in the world as some data sets become uh, properly global. Out of curiosity, what ISOs do you think uh, provide the best data uh, that you're able to forecast effectively? You know, it's interesting. It's kind of a moving target. Um, I think the current leader is PJM. I think they took the baton from ERCOT, which had been amazingly transparent about individual uh, power plant bidding. But PJM has really been going hard on being transparent and open with their emissions data recently. And so uh, you could do very impressive local optimization there. So what time I understand is a, is a nonprofit. Tell me a little bit about how the decision process behind being a nonprofit. Do you have any anticipation of going 
24 profit, a little bit overview of your business model and what you see going forward. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We didn't originally expect to be a nonprofit. This started, as I mentioned, as kind of a hobby project. And we sort of assumed that how do you do a tech startup? You found a for-profit company. That's what you do. And when we started talking to VCs and, and past founders about what's that like? What happens? One of the things we quickly figured out is that a lot of um, founders experience a real trade-off between the strategy that's going to make more money and more return for their investors and going to be closer to their original vision. And we realized that the natural gravity for something like WattTime would be pulling us closer and closer to optimizing on real-time prices, demand response, and other very profitable techniques. And nobody was really looking at the environmental aspect of time shifting. And so we concluded that in our unusual case, to, to protect the incentives, to really keep it on the environmental push, we kind of had to be a nonprofit. And so for years, we thought, surely this is going to go away. Surely to get anything done, you need to be a for-profit. But what we've discovered is that we can have a perfectly viable business model as a nonprofit. And so we make most of our money, a little bit through consulting, we make most of our money uh, licensing to IoT companies. Turns out to be pretty good marketing to say, hey, this device runs largely on clean energy just through an automated emissions reduction technique. And so companies pay us for the licensing rights to that and a little bit of consulting. And we do also raise some foundation grants uh, based purely on the impact. So we sort of put all three of those in the pot and we're able to run a tech startup that I don't, I don't think ever will go for profit. And so what about if you have any other ideas that can really expand? I mean, it sounds like the funding that you've established right now is pretty sufficient for how you see what time continuing to grow and expand in the future. Yeah. And so we may go in other project areas. One example is we're doing this uh, project Climate Trace now, which started on um, if you are trying to do AER in a country that has no public information, how are you going to get any information about power grids? And so um, with support from uh, the Google AI Impact Challenge, we started applying AI to satellite imagery and getting a look at uh, power plants from space. And I bring that up because that was a completely new cost center that had no revenue attached. It was purely uh, philanthropic um, play. And so that project is almost entirely, is entirely grant supported. And as we get into new areas, sort of on a project by project basis, we're thinking about completely different funding models. And if we ever did trip over a project that um, can have a lot of impact but needs a lot of revenue, you could roll out a for-profit subsidiary. Mozilla has done things like this where some parts of it are for-profit. What are your thoughts on, I know some of the wholesale power markets have been looking at getting some type of carbon tax pricing added into there. How does what WattTime provides impact any of that going forward? Yeah, you know, originally we expected that we would be a temporary organization because surely everybody was headed for a carbon price and surely a carbon price would provide the optimal solution. And that lasted until we started spending a lot of time with IoT companies about, forget the theory of carbon prices, how are you actually dispatching load? And we discovered there are some very subtle patterns in there where um, actually having an intentional look at emissions is very, very different than a carbon price in theory. The best example of this is curtailment. It's often the case that the price of power is essentially identical between wind in the middle of the night and coal in the middle of the night that are marginal in very similar time periods. So if you have a device that is thinking from a cost perspective about when should I charge, maybe it's reacting a lot to uh, big peaker plants happening in the middle of the day at peak power and that's saving a little bit of emissions. But it's basically ignoring the difference between some of the dirtiest energy there is and some of the cleanest energy there is, unless you have a very, very high carbon price, which we don't think is ever going to come. 
So what we figured out is uh, it's great for ISOs to be dispatching with a carbon adder per se, but even a pretty serious carbon tax in areas like Reggie don't actually cause IoT devices like electric vehicles and batteries and so on to dispatch optimally from an environmental perspective. And even a tiny bit of intentional looking at emissions can have a huge effect on their environmental footprint. So we think the long-term solution is something like a carbon tax or uh, anything else at the ISO level that's a little bit carbon aware. But actually, we've backed off on the idea that you'll ever not need to have any carbon aware dispatch. We think IoT devices will probably want to have a signal like this increasingly uh, ubiquitously as we see a bigger and bigger spread. Because the other thing going on here is that as a carbon tax succeeds in getting more renewable energy out there, it's becoming more and more common that two periods that are only a few minutes apart might have wildly different environmental impacts. That spread is growing and growing and growing. So it was one thing to ignore it in 2012. Ignoring it now is starting to be a little bit crazy. And we think in 15 years, it'll be a non-starter to dispatch large amounts of load without looking at the environmental effects. And hence the, the minimal amount of change in terms of time you say the dispatch type has a huge impact on on the emissions. And so hence goes back to your really non-cost impact to the consumer for just switching over to, you know, charging my EV at a certain period of time when there's 80% renewable energy on the grid versus when maybe there's 80% fossil fuel power coming onto the grid. Yeah. And in terms of that minimal change, one of the things we uh, learned is if you look closely at the consumer experience of load shifting pre-AER, a lot of it feels very command and control, and it's very heavy because it was designed for the assumption that you want to do what you're doing, and then if you are forced or paid to change, you might be willing to do that. So a typical, for example, demand response program will totally ignore the consumer until there's a really big problem, and then they will clamp down that energy demand whether the consumer likes it or not and pay them for their trouble. But a completely different mechanism is to say, what if you want your beer to be cold, you want your car to be charged or your laptop to have enough energy, but you don't actually care whether that happens at 4.05 p.m. or 4.10 p.m.? That has nothing to do with preferences. So what we've tried to do is move to that minimum effect where we say the goal of the consumer is to get whatever they ask for, and they probably don't care when it happens. And so flipping it onto its head of a continuous load optimization to get the result that a consumer asks for at the best environmental punch that doesn't increase their cost, it's actually a profoundly different way of thinking about timing than most DR and real-time pricing to date. And I think that's, you'd have everybody signing up for that. I mean, to the, to the extent they could say, I'm going to be using the most renewable energy, but it's not going to impact my bill. I don't think you'd have anybody saying that they didn't want that. Yeah, you know, it'd be possible to design a version of this that had a little bit more environmental punch, but we tried to design a version that there's literally no catch. Like it doesn't cost anything. You don't have to do anything. Uh, it's kind of a no regret solution. And so we're going for ubiquity here where uh, nobody is worse off and there's no reason we can't all do this as opposed to like a, like an even slightly more effective solution that um, there's a big catch and you have to think carefully about whether you want it. So tell me how this is actually rolled out in, in practice. So if I've got some type of smart device in, in my house and, and let's say that I'm looking at saying, okay, well, from a heating and cooling standpoint, I, I'm going to want it when when I want it, right? I'm going to want the cooling when I'm at home during the summer. But those other types of service, like running my dishwasher, laundry, laundry machines, things like that, that I can pick the time. How are you able to do that 
on whatever devices that, that you guys uh, are working with? So we think of the world as there's fundamentally two types of load shifting. One, like laundry, a human has to care. So if the laundry machine runs at a certain time, you need to know about that. Uh, and so those types of load shifting do happen, but we find that they're actually growing uh, slower than the type where a human has no preferences. Great example of this is an air conditioner. So people care what temperature their house is. And most people are actually not even aware that a typical thermostat or air conditioner cycle, it will turn on for 15 minutes out of an hour. And if it turned on 15 minutes later, you can't even feel the difference. And this matters because uh, increasingly what's happening with renewable energy is that the biggest variation is at the five minute level. You get spikes of wind that really affect the carbon footprint of using electricity that are so short. If you can get the timing right, you can say, this house is going to be a temperature that feels exactly the same. And we're going to do these little micro adjustments of when the temperature happens, fully automated, and you won't even notice the difference. So something we've done just for fun is um, when we've turned on AER in buildings, sometimes we don't tell the building occupants like when we did it in our own building uh, until two days later. And then we say, did anybody notice? And nobody was even aware that it has happened. That's kind of our proof of concept that we're doing a good job, like not bugging anybody. Interesting. And so it's just automatic and, and the consumer signs up for it. Stuff like that is rolled through uh, and they know about it. But And then they can obviously go back and switch that off on yeah. the devices that they're using. Yeah. We have this philosophy that like uh, the whole reason this is going to take off is that there's no regrets. So if anybody has any complaint, like it should be always, always the case that you can turn it off. We think this should be a completely optional solution. And the only question is, do you default on or default off? And we leave that to the particular IoT company. So some IoT companies leave it as this is going to be automatic unless anybody opts out and others have it be you can opt in. That's the only real trade-off. With the growing use of renewables, such as solar, in our energy mix, the role of energy storage systems is more important than ever to ensure grid stability and reliability. Jinko Solar has you covered with battery storage solutions for grid edge to CNI and residential application. Jinko's new Eagle CS energy storage platform is a fully integrated turnkey AC coupled system featuring lithium iron phosphate for LFP batteries. It's scalable and fully configurable making it ideal for any CNI or utility application. Eagle CS features both container level battery storage and modular solutions for maximum flexibility in system design. From microgrids to full-scale utility applications, Eagle CS has a solution and it's all backed by one of the most trusted brands in the renewable energy industry. Jinko's Eagle RS is a fully integrated DC coupled residential energy storage system that features best-in-class safety with LFP battery chemistry, an intelligent US-based monitoring app, and a single wrapped warranty. Jinko's high-capacity storage system is ideal for homes that need more than a few hours of backup. The use of just one single hybrid inverter for both the solar and the storage energy conversion provides the best value for solar plus storage installations. Visit www.jinkosolar.us interchange to learn more about Jinko Solar's Eagle Storage products. How do you see this type of technology just impacting the, the energy transition going forward? I mean, obviously, there's very aggressive goals that have been set out, but you've developed something that, again, is allowing the average consumer to make an impact on a daily basis where I think historically they just they weren't aware of how they actually could. Uh, so how do you see this rolling forward, you know, going into 10, 20 years from now? 
honestly, the more I think about this problem, the more I think like, how could you solve climate change without a technology just like this? Because fundamentally, I spent the first 10 years of my career looking at the cost of renewables versus the cost of fossil fuels, thinking we have got to get renewables cheaper than fossil fuels. And we did. And the next 10 years of my career have all been all about, okay, now what do we do about the timing problem? What do we do if it's extremely cheap to have renewable energy at the wrong times of day? And what I keep coming back to is if you don't have a no regret solution like AER being pretty common, then you need to have large scale deployments of energy storage. And I think a lot of people haven't grappled yet with how much energy storage we are talking about here. So it's one thing with the flexible amounts of load we have today, but when we're talking about complete electrification of every car on the planet, let alone heavy industry, we are talking about adding like an entire second, possibly third power grid and powering that all on variable sources. If we don't have it be absolutely ubiquitous that anything that can is flexible, we're going to need to build two entire power grids worth of energy storage. And the cost of that, I think, is just going to really hold back the transition. If we can do it with some clever software instead, I think that's, that's easy 20 years faster. When you talk about EVs, you know, there are some uh, out there that say, okay, in order to drive to more electric vehicle purchases and use, that you need to really make gas extremely expensive. Uh, we had a mm. podcast a while ago, and that was one of the one of the guests that was the philosophy is just make it really expensive so that they're not driving as much. You know, on this, what are your thoughts? It, it sounds like this is a nice initial step in terms of just a more efficient use of what we have and when it's available and not necessarily going to make coal-fired plants or gas-fired plants more expensive and pushing them towards. It is something that people can do every day by just monitoring when they're using things or like your air conditioner example was a good one is, look, five minutes may make a big impact on the environment, but it's not going to make a big impact on your comfort level. And, and so it seems like that's just kind of a nice initial step going on to just having more hooked up to the grid. Is that, that kind of your thought? Yeah, basically, I think it's possible if you want to solve the problem with a blunt force instrument, we could just make fossil fuels so expensive that it would work. Uh, but why do something so difficult when there are simpler solutions available? So I originally trained as a behavioral economist. Um, and so I was spending a lot of time thinking about how do energy experts think ordinary people think about environment versus what do studies say how ordinary people actually think about environment and electricity? One of the biggest spreads I saw is that it's very common for energy experts to misunderstand a consumer's lack of interest in some new environmental instrument as being about cost when there's actually no evidence that if you ask those consumers or watch their behavior that it's really about cost. So it's very common, we, for example, see in demand response studies that it's a hassle to participate. It's a pain and you got to you got to remember your password. You got to sign up at some new program. You have to think about something. And that's what's actually holding someone back as opposed to the price. So yeah, with enough money, you can always make people be green. But why force them to be green if the actual problem is that you're making it a pain to do the right thing? And if you can make it simple, actually people want to. So we've been really interested in some studies that, for example, 90% of randomly selected Americans who we have sampled in, in any U.S. state say that they would be interested in using automated emissions reduction if it were free. 90% is an interesting number because it's more than the number who say they believe in climate change. And what we have experienced is that the more you can make this absolutely painless, not telling people what to do, not raising price, but just saying, what do you want to do if it's your choice? The more you get really, really different behavior than if you approach it from purely financial terms. So again, I think cost could work, but I don't think it's necessary. So how do you think the best way to deploy this technology is? Because obviously you've got a partnership with Google Nest. Uh, I actually have 
Google Nest in my home, and I know a lot of people have been adding that. But what about those that may not have that type of technology in their house in terms of a smart meter or anything? How do you get that in there to them at no cost? So the way I've been thinking about this is that not everybody has a lot of IoT devices today, but we know that there's now, what is it, seven times as many IoT devices as people, and they're growing exponentially. So as the cost of these things become ubiquitous, what we are hoping uh, is just to make this sort of standard procedure for any IoT device. And I kind of want to contrast how different that is as an environmental strategy. Instead of going out there and saying, you should, you must, just saying, uh, they should, they must, they, energy experts like us and IoT companies that have the wherewithal to really make this work, providing this as a standard solution for anybody buying any thermostat, any company, is very, very different than the way, for example, we've approached recycling, where the environmental message was that every consumer needs to be taking an action, taking on that burden. That's a very, very different approach to environmentalism. And we think that if there's a universal signal and it's incredibly quick and easy for any IoT company to make their product green, and consumers have a slight preference for that, it's sort of automatically taken care of for everybody in this very light touch way. No, it's very interesting uh, and definitely a different strategy, but it makes perfect sense with, I mean, just look at iPhones, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they get new software added to the iPhones and people are going to take the iPhones. So you're basically banking on the growth, having the market leaders adopt it and do what's right. And then you just continue into growth with uh, being a part of it. Yeah. And so I think one of the big, big reasons I think this is all going to work is we are seeing so many car companies in particular saying, okay, we are now betting on a fully electric future. And we are now betting on a future where every car is going to have an internet connection and be capable of adjusting its timing every five minutes. And if it weren't the case that that massive, massive quantity of energy was planning on making that the norm for everybody, not just for the wealthy, then we'd be looking at a very different story. But that is just a massive transition. We're basically just riding that wave. What do you think needs to be done? I mean, this is kind of leading into the policy side of the discussion and and what government and policy can be doing to help this. But a, a little bit before that is what what do you think needs to happen in your mind to the grid? Uh, so obviously, this is kind of a behind the meter technology that the consumer can employ to help make an impact. But is there anything that you think needs to be done from a grid standpoint, the ISO standpoint to help with further adopting this type of even behavior, if you will? Yeah, I think there's two things that grids should be doing. First of all, most countries uh, still need to make their grid behavior a lot more transparent. So we're fortunate enough that here in the United States and a few other countries, grids really have very open environmental monitoring and very open uh, public provision of data about what's going on in the grid. That's enormously helpful for making sure these algorithms are accurate. So I would love to see more and more countries making their grid behavior transparent like that. And then the second thing is for those grids that are in a more transparent place like the U.S., starting to make some of this information publicly available uh, in real time in a more authoritative sense, I think would just help make this the norm. So there's a very interesting provision in the uh, infrastructure bill that passed in November that the United States Department of Energy will actually begin providing a signal that's called a marginal emissions signal. That's the data that makes AER possible. Um, And so interestingly enough, I'm not sure it's a case where our little nonprofit is advocating for a big policy change. I think it's more like, hey, it passed. Uh, that that has already happened. And uh, we think the U.S. is going to be making it very transparent for any IoT manufacturer to say, hey, here's the times that are clean and dirty anywhere in the country. And I would love to see that be the start of a chain reaction where every country goes in that direction. And I mean, for those that aren't there yet, 
Uh, and in terms of expansion of this software technology globally, that's where the satellite partnership comes in is being able to monitor the emissions coming from those different regions where you don't have that granular grid data available, but you can still help the consumer make an impact uh, with that with that service from a global standpoint. Yeah, if you think about how the modern tech sector works, like national borders don't mean a whole lot for your average IoT company. They are present in so many countries. And so for a common consumer experience that's optimized everywhere, we get the request every day, well, it's great if uh, the US is doing this, or it's great if uh, Taiwan is doing this, but how do we have this everywhere? And so what we're doing is supplementing uh, nationally reported data and grid reported data with what we can see from space in a kind of one-stop shop so that anybody can see what's going on in grids. And the reason I think that's particularly interesting is it means the strategy that a uh, fossil fuel industry could try to say, we should have our grid not be transparent so that we can keep doing all the coal and oil we want. It doesn't work very well anymore. So it kind of changes the incentives uh, for uh, hiding information towards, well, this is going to be on the internet whether you like it or not, and you can make it a little bit more effective or a little bit less effective. But the idea that you're going to hide your pollution, that's just going away. That's not going to be a thing anymore. How can people see after the fact? So they sign up for the service and they're going to be monitored to use more clean energy. Do they have some type of report that says, hey, you were using X amount of power in these times when it was 80% renewable on the grid? Or how do they get maybe an after the fact report to show them that the impact that they had by based on their decision making? Yeah, you know, so we are we are scientists, we are not designers, and it sometimes shows. Watt Time doesn't have our own amazing diagram and reports uh, that are, are really well designed for consumers. But we do hand the data to IoT companies to do that. And what we typically find is that if you're in the business of selling devices, mass marketing to consumers, you are very good at making beautiful reports with data. And so uh, each different IoT company we work with has their own system of how they want to pass that information on to their consumers. Sometimes they combine it with other information the consumer cares about so they don't have to go to a separate watt time portal. And so we can provide the information on here was the carbon footprint before and after. And we see companies doing different clever things with uh, how they want to make that information available to their users. How have you found the accuracy of your database? I mean, obviously you put you, you get the real time and you find these triggers of where you uh, can forecast pretty effectively where uh, what, what the usage is going to be like in terms of between the fossil fuels and, and renewable. but how how have you found that constant development of your reporting and forecasting to be? Well, it's definitely better in grids that have more public transparent data, but basically it works very similar to a weather forecast. So if you look at some of our numbers, you might see the equi- the numerical equivalent of a 60% chance of rain. So in our case, like it would be a 60% chance of wind curtailment, 40% chance of fossil fuels. And so that's accurate in the sense that it's bang on the money six times out of 10, exactly what it says on the tin, but it's not accurate in the sense that we would, instead of even having a number like 60%, we would rather be able to say, oh, there's a 100% chance now and a 0% chance later. So um, we always struggle with how do we get that closer to something is definitely going to happen now or definitely not going to happen. But in terms of those kind of like, what are the probabilistic results, uh, we've been able to get it successfully bang on the money with machine learning. How do you see the technology going forward? I mean, do you see it making an impact on actually the load uh, of types of energy, whether it be renewable or fossil fuels? I mean, as people maybe adopt this and drive more towards using when renewable energy is on there, do you think that there might eventually be a shift in terms of the availability on the, gra- on the grid, given this type of behavior? Yeah. In fact, one of the more interesting problems we are struggling with right now is we are starting to have enough load being shifted with AAR 
that it changes the answer. So you need a feedback loop in the algorithm itself to say, okay, but if you shift 500 megawatts and there was, let's say, 400 megawatts of curtailment, then that means that last 100 megawatts, actually, that's not the best time for them. And so uh, the difference between the classic way that the energy sector has talked about marginal pricing, which is that you could have it be for an infinitely small amount of energy, that's going away. And we're using increasingly like the academic definition of marginal, which is if you're shifting a certain amount of electricity, what's the answer for that amount of electricity? And if that's a watt, that's one thing. But if that's a gigawatt, it's not the same answer. And so we're needing to increasingly think about, as these are becoming really large-scale changes in grids, how do we make sure that the system is intelligent enough to know what users are doing in response to the signal itself? Otherwise, you could end up with positive feedback loops and things like that. That was where I was going with the question is, is that marginal unit is that if you've got everybody signing up to where it overfills the, the amount of renewable energy on there, and you've got a gas fire that has spare capacity, that's going to be fired up to go ahead and manage the incremental. So you're actually driving them towards a time maybe when they otherwise would, but it's going to be serviced by, by gas. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So for the real math geeks out there, I'll say um, it's a debate over where the marginal means the tangent or the chord on a curve. Um, and in plain English, uh, whether we are talking about changing an extraordinarily small amount of load or changing an amount of load that is what it is, it might be big, it might be small, and it actually, you get a really different answer. So um, one of the more complicated things here is as you get more and more load, the ways you can reduce emissions get increasingly complicated. Uh, and how you optimize a system that gives two different answers to two different groups of people, for example, um, that becomes a pretty sophisticated system. And the way we're thinking about it is that the more people who use AR, the more it makes sense to build out a more and more sophisticated system. And this is why we're always in close collaboration with universities and others, because this thing gets to be pretty complicated under the hood even though the user experience at the end of the day is just a simple, like you just press go and it just gives you the energy you asked for. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it, it, it's nice because this whole energy transition is going to be an evolution and it's your technology is, hey, we're continuing to evolve and adapt to optimize uh, what, what we're trying to accomplish and not just here's the technology and, and we are kind of just going to keep it as is. It's evolving as the energy transition evolves because these are the type of questions that I think some people don't think about, or it never really comes up until you're in the middle of it, and then it becomes an issue that wasn't forethought of. Yes, and I think one of the biggest things that I have learned along the way is never underestimate how fast innovation is going to throw all yesterday's rules out the window. And so every time I have gotten used to thinking in terms of rules of thumb, like, oh, it usually works like this. Fast forward three years, nope, doesn't work that way anymore. Um, you know, one example is... Uh, the marginal power plant in uh, New England was often a coal plant. Three years later, there are no coal plants in New England anymore. So what time of day is cleanest? Completely different answer. Uh, and so thinking in terms of what's your goal, what's your system to find that goal, as opposed to how does stuff work? It's a total mindset shift that I think as the energy system just evolves faster and faster, we're all going to have to get used to thinking that way, as opposed to the rules of thumb we've been using for 50 years. They just they don't work anymore. That's exactly right. I mean, everybody's kind of learning in this together uh, as we go along. Where do you see this type of technology being applicable in other areas? Yeah. Uh, so we've kind of focused on the consumer, but where else? So one thing we do a lot is industrial loads. And so if you are starting to think about large-scale hydrogen production, for example, uh, making sure that hydrogen was produced on renewable energy that otherwise would have been thrown away 
instead of surplus fossil fuels. That's just night and day for the environment. So we work with a lot of large-scale industrial loads. Then there's other things data can do that are slightly different applications. So one that I love is um, if you are not using electricity, but you're adding renewable electricity to the grid. I always used to think of solar and wind as having a zero carbon footprint. That's kind of the most intuitive way to think about it. But actually, if you build a new wind farm, it doesn't have no effect on the environment. It turns off whatever power plants were going to produce something anyway. And so actually, the carbon footprint of new renewable energy depends on the carbon footprint of the marginal power plant in the same way as this AER technology. And so we're working increasingly with um, large corporations and governments who have the ability to site new load uh, in areas where they can set, or excuse me, new uh, renewable energy generation in areas will cause the maximum benefit for the environment. So we're seeing things like, hang on, if you build a wind farm in um, Poland instead of Sweden, it reduces 20 times more emissions in the real world because it is displacing much dirtier energy. So we've worked with companies like Salesforce and, and universities like Boston University to site new renewable energy in locations where it's more impactful. And um, we think that that technology is poised to really take off as well. So Gavin, who else is out there providing this type of technology or other tangently related technologies that you see kind of making an impact on the energy transition in the next few years? Yeah, you know, one of the things that has been really interesting about this is starting to think about the intersection between environment and data and optimization as uh, kind of the tip of the iceberg of many similar solutions. So I don't think it's a coincidence that Wattime started in electricity because electricity has historically been the sector with the best monitoring. We have amazing data about what's going on with the emissions of a lot of electricity. It's a lot harder to get data on steel mills, for example. But we are starting to see quality of data improve in other areas of environment. And we're starting to see other organizations do really interesting forms of optimization. So one I thought was intriguing was OceanMind, which is in the business of using satellites to monitor shipping emissions. They have figured out that the speed ships go at have a huge impact on emissions. And policymakers can have a surprisingly big effect on emissions by shipping speed limits. Now, I don't know anything about the policy implications of whether ships need to go to a certain speed or not, but uh, that to me sort of indicates there's much more coming. Another thing, Google has been doing some really interesting things recently with route optimization. If you go into Google Maps now, you can see the carbon footprint of driving one way versus another way is different, and Google Maps will just give you that slight nudge. So I think that uh, we are seeing many organizations start to play around with data, and electricity was kind of the first of many to come. But I would love to see a world in five, 10 years where uh, in the same way that we just take it for granted that energy efficiency has a huge effect on emissions, just emissions efficiency, optimizing with data, all the ways to just be smarter about emissions at no catch, no cost, I think we're going to see dozens of startups being founded in the next couple of years, doing variations of that in, in steel, um, cement, uh, you name it. Data's king, right? I mean, we're, we're finding that out in today's environment, that it is really key to the energy transition, but life in general. And, and the more armed people are to be able to make the right decisions, the better off they are. And that's what I like about Wattime is, is you guys are arming everybody to be able to make those decisions where otherwise they may have... Uh, not understood or, or just not had the understanding or knowledge to be able to make those decisions. So it, I find it very useful to the consumer. And so what can, what can kind of people do to help uh, adopt this? I mean, is it, is it looking at those types of services like Google Renew? 
Um, but what can they do to help help achieve this? Yeah, I think data is king. And um, so what's interesting about data is that often the pattern is that uh, experts in a certain area need to make it possible. And then uh, all of us as consumers need to say like, yeah, I choose that. And so I think we're going to see a new category of technologies uh, like smart thermostats that run AR that are just greener. And I think that first of all, consumers should, should prioritize brands that do that. So just like there's an Energy Star lo- logo um, saying, hey, I want that AR logo and I want a thermostat that does that is great. But the other thing is data is so cheap. I think consumers should set an expectation that unlike energy efficiency, doesn't mean I'm willing to pay extra for it. I think that where this should be going is this should be the norm and it should be more like, why would you buy something that doesn't have the greenest technology available when it's that cheap, as opposed to uh, being in a situation where only the wealthy can avoid, uh, can afford the cleaner technologies. And so I would love to see the average consumer starting to insist on technologies being as green as is reasonable as these things become more and more common. And how can we keep up with what time's progress in all the other areas that you're looking to explore? Check us out at whattime.org. Um, we have a very active Twitter presence. Um, we'd love to see you uh, jumping on in. Well, listen, I, I really do appreciate your time. Uh, again, I think that this was very interesting because again, it, it, it's, it's how the average consumer can make a difference in the energy transition. A lot of these topics that we've had have been more company oriented is how do we get these sources of renewable energy uh, but this has been a discussion about the the consumer and, and how they can make an impact and what what time is doing to to give them the the ammo the information that they need to be able to make a difference and I really appreciate your time and coming and speak with us today. Yeah, you know, thank you so much for having me and I guess uh to all of us including you and me who are ordinary consumers, I would just say in a sense you already have that power, just knowing how to use it uh is a pretty exciting change in how to look at the grid. Thanks again. Thanks very much. If you knew that at 2 p.m. every day, the power being supplied was from renewables, would you wait to charge your EV? If you were given the opportunity of purchasing a smart meter or updating your existing device, would you want to know what type of energy your home is using? Most people listening to this would say yes. Wattime wants to help educate the normal person and help them make the cleaner decision when flipping on that light switch. Thank you all for listening. And if you have a chance, go ahead and leave us a comment uh, on Twitter or rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll talk to you next time.